Welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name is Dr. Clayton Johnson, the host of our podcast. And joining me in our podcast series today is Dr. Marie Colhane with the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Marie. Hi, thanks, Clayton. Thanks for having me here today. Well, it is good to chat with you as always. Um, Marie, I know that the vast majority of our listeners probably have um, listened to you talk about influenza or, or some other component of swine health uh, at some point. But in case somebody out there has not met you or heard you speak before, would you give us a quick background on yourself, um, your, your experiences in the industry and your role with the University of Minnesota today? Sure, thanks. Um, well, I'm a swine veterinarian by training. Um, I got my DVM degree here from the University of Minnesota many years ago. Um, and then after I graduated from vet school, I went and worked for PIC as a uh, health assurance uh, veterinarian there, um, where I further fell in love with working with swine. Uh, I always knew I wanted to get more than a DVM, which a DVM is a lot, but I wanted to get more. And so um, after a few years working with PIC, I returned to the University of Minnesota, where I uh, did a pathology residency and a PhD. And my PhD research was on influenza viruses of swine um, and uh, characterizing those and designing surveillance plans for those. And ever since I finished my PhD, then I became a faculty member here at the University of Minnesota, uh, progressed through the ranks and continued working with influenza viruses. So now I'm a professor here at the University of Minnesota. I still work with influenza viruses, um, but I work with influenza viruses of all species, uh, poultry, swine and humans, um, the zoonotic influenza viruses. And I do research on um, other swine diseases and other um, high impact diseases, uh, such as African swine fever, uh, classical swine fever, foot and mouth disease, virulent Newcastle disease of poultry. Uh, so I kind of moved into the emergency planning and preparedness uh, side in the last seven years, uh, not in the diagnostic lab anymore. So not doing diagnostic pathology, more doing uh, using that diagnostic pathology uh, career or mindset to help with the preparedness activities for outbreaks in the future. So that's what I'm going to do in Minnesota, born and bred, if you can't tell by the accent. So, but hope, hopefully have a global impact and not just a Minnesota impact. We very much appreciate all your work um, for sure on the emergency disease and preparedness. On the swine side, we've been fortunate that um, we've spent a lot of time planning over the last uh, probably three to five years. It's really intensified, um, but we have not had to deploy all the, the worst case scenario type plans. Uh, but as you mentioned, in the influenza world, it's a shared disease, right? Humans, pigs, and birds. And um, there have been some situations where they've had to deploy the plans on the bird side for influenza outbreaks. Yeah. You, you want to talk a little bit about the shared disease that is influenza, Marie, and, and, you know, the basic biology that we all get trained on, whether it's DVM or animal sciences early in our career. How have you leveraged the basic biology and your understanding of influenza and birds to help you with the emergency preparedness side? And what, what can we start to learn from that? Yeah, so let's go back and talk about the virus itself. So influenza virus is a virus. Uh, which um, influenza virus has been a long, a really long time. Uh, there's writings about it in 500 BC. People were writing about influenza. They didn't know it was influenza, of course, until the 1930s. Um, so, but it's a really old disease, a virus. And viruses that are around that long, they're around that long because they're successful at changing and adapting and infecting multiple species, um, usually not killing the host, 
um, but changing it so they can spread and things like that. So influenza virus is super successful because there's so many different hosts. We already talked about birds, humans, and pigs. That's the kind of triangle that I work in, that little triad of human pig poultry triad. Um, Amy Vincent, a researcher for the USDA, kind of focused me in on that. And I've been working with her ever since on those things. But influenza viruses infect marine mammals, dogs, cats, horses. So, so very interesting virus in itself. Um, we don't have to go into, you know, RNA viruses, you know, segmented, blah, blah, blah. Let's, let's skip all that, but let's focus on how influenza viruses move between species. Um, so influenza virus, um, in most species, it's a respiratory virus. So let's talk about humans and pigs. When humans get influenza virus, usually around Christmas time, Every year, we all get together with our families. We go to Christmas and New Year's party, and then we all get sick. Um, and we're sick. We have a headache. We have a cough. We have a sneeze. We get uh, chills from the fever and body aches and things like that. Pigs get the same type of clinical signs. You've seen them, Clayton. You know, they don't want to get up. They don't feel good. And when a pig doesn't get up, and then he doesn't eat. And that's the big problem. Then they can cough, and then they can sneeze. And a healthy pig will get over it in about seven days, but a pig that also has bacteria infection, you know, they may um, not get over it. They may have to be euthanized or they may die from the complications of pneumonia. Um, so that's the pig disease. Uh, turkeys with influenza, um, they actually are very susceptible to influenzas. And one of the influenzas that turkeys get a lot is swine H3 influenzas and swine H1 influenzas. And the turkey breeder hens, um, they'll actually, um, they don't, they'll have a little bit of a cough, what they call a snick, but they'll lose egg production. And so they won't be able to lay eggs. And so for a breeder, you can imagine that that's a problem. Um, so one thing I did mention there, I said the word H1 and H3. So influenza viruses, there are now for sure 17 H types and 11 or 13 N types. And I say, I don't know because those H 17s, H 18s, H 19s, those names we've given viruses, those are found in species like bats. And I haven't worked with bats yet, but so there's a lot of different H types and we call them H hemagglutinin and N neuraminidase. Those are two proteins that stick out from the surface of the virus and they, um, they're how we name the viruses because they're an antigenic type. So an H1 virus is different from an H2, H3, H4, H5, H6. So we kind of think of that as like the license plate of the virus. We identify it like, oh yeah, that's an H1N1. That's an H3N2, things like that. So that's the license plate of a virus if you think it's the outside of it. Um, so it's a little bit of nomenclature that I couldn't get rid of there. So back to switching back to turkeys. So turkeys, we said they are very susceptible to getting H3 and H1 swine-like influenza viruses, which can be difficult for them because if it's a turkey breeder hen that gets infected, she won't be able to lay eggs for a while until she feels better and gets over that disease. There's a whole nother realm of influenza viruses, and those are the influenza viruses of wild birds. And now wild birds, they are the natural hosts or reservoirs for the avian influenza viruses. And when something's a natural host or a reservoir, that means the virus lives in them and sheds um, and then they get over it and there's really no problems with those birds. 
And so um, that's the way it is with wild birds and in avian influenza viruses. And that's true for most of the avian influenza viruses of wild birds. It doesn't cause much problem. They, they um, shed the virus in their feces. They don't have a cough or anything like that. It's not a respiratory virus in those natural reservoirs. It's a virus of the enteric system of the GI tract. It's in their droppings, it's in their poop. So, however, if a wild bird dropping with influenza virus gets into a chicken or turkey outside, it's either dragged into the barn on somebody's boots or the birds are allowed outside for pasture raising, which is a very appealing for a lot of people to have chickens and turkeys outside. Those chickens and turkeys then sometimes they get um, what we call the low path version of avian influenza. I mean, they're only going to have a mild enteric disease. They're, they're going to have a little bit of diarrhea. They're going to um, react to the virus and be fine. Sometimes they find a virus that they were exposed to from a wild bird or it was dragged into the farm. And it's what we call a highly pathogenic virus. Highly pathogenic viruses of birds go all over. They go into the brain, the respiratory tract, the heart, the spleen, the lungs and the enteric system. And so that's highly pathogenic. That doesn't work out for all for the turkeys and the chickens. They die from those highly pathogenic viruses. Highly pathogenic viruses, we give them the name, the, the, uh, the license plate, those are usually H5s, H7s, and there's some evidence that H9s can be highly pathogenic. But in the United States, we're really concerned about H5s and H7s, or the, the globe is concerned about H5s and H7s. One last thing, just bringing this all the way back around. Remember how I said we go Christmas and New Year's, we get sick? Well, humans can also get sick with these highly pathogenic H5, H7 viruses. So if a turkey or a chicken gets an H5, H7 virus, that virus is everywhere. So let's say you were home slaughtering a chicken and it had H5, right? That virus is in that chicken's blood. That virus is in that chicken's meat. And so in countries that raise chickens, everybody has their own chickens in their backyard. They raise them, they slaughter them themselves. That's where we see these um, human infections with H5 and H7. And it can be a very serious disease for humans. Um, and it can be that we just check them later on, say, and they have antibodies to the virus. So somehow they got infected. Most humans will get um, conjunctivitis. So the eye infection from H5, H7 is really weird, but some humans can get very, very sick from H5 and H7s and die. Um, and so that's why we're really concerned about H5, H7. One, it kills poultry. Two, it can can kill humans, um, but we have a lot of tools back to humans to control influenza viruses. So do you wanna talk about controlling influenza viruses? Cause that's the nice thing about this virus is we have a lot of opportunities to control it. Absolutely. But before we get there, I think it'd be good to spend a little more time on the high path versus low path side of things. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the H1s and the H3s, which the pigs have occasionally and, and do sometimes share with our, our turkey partners. But then the H5s, H7s, for sure, maybe H9s are more of the high path. Is it really only that H gene designation that determines high path and low path? Or is that oversimplifying it and there's more that goes into it? Um, that's the majority of it. The majority of the virulence determination, what makes it high path or or low path is associated with the hemagglutinin gene. And it's, um, there's ways we look at it, you know, um, genetically and we say, oh, that looks like a high path virus based on the genetics. So it's determined by giving that virus that you found in the birds, 
in a laboratory setting, you um, inoculate, you put it into eggs. And if those embryos, those chicken embryos of those eggs die within a few days and 50% of them die, then that's a laboratory designation that is highly pathogenic. So it's a laboratory characterization and a genetic characterization that makes virus H5H7 specifically. Out in the field, it's how many birds are dying, right? And again, when we're out in the field, there's other things that are going on, right? Did they have a bacterial infection? Was the feed right? Was the temperature right in the barn and stuff like that? So it's a laboratory designation H5H7 based on that H or hemagglutinin. Yep. So it's a lot of uh, phenotype. It's a lot of the outcome of the disease that determines that. But typically when we find the really bad outcomes of the disease, it's more the H5s, H7s, maybe H9s that are the genotype associated with those bad outcomes. Yep. Yep. And yep. It's an, and it's genotype. I think you said two good words there, genotype and phenotype combined. So do they have the genetics and then do they express them? That's what phenotype is, right? Yep. So, yep. So do they have what, what they can be and then are they? Yep. That's great. Perfect. Very good. We talked about uh, turkeys quite a bit, and you kind of explained the difference between the turkey layers and then the the growing turkeys. Um, pullets, I think, is the right terminology, but no, uh, what's, they're, what's, they're, what's the right they're one? Not, so they're not chicks; they're poults. Poults. Yep. And then the poults um, be, become growers, and then then they're they're turkeys after that. And forgive me, all the turkey people online, I'm probably screwing that up too. But I do know it's a turkey poult, not a turkey chick. Yeah. So remember, I, I called myself a swine veterinarian. I'm going to stick with that for this podcast. So. <laughs> you, you and me both. And that's probably okay. being, uh, overly complimentary to myself, even to say the swine part of it. Um, how about on the, the chicken side? Um, as I understand it, the, the layers, the, there are big issues with high path AI if that gets into a layer herd. Um, but we don't talk about it as much with the, the broilers, I think, is the growing chicken. Why, why, don't, why, why is that dichotomy? Why do we worry about it in the adult chicken farms, but not so much in the growing chicken farms? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different things, and these are usually figured out after the fact with really good research. But let's take H5, for example. So the H5 um, highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses of 2015 which was our previous outbreak with H5. Um, we have a current one right now in 2022 with H5 in, in poultry, but let's go back to 2015. So that 2015 highly pathogenic H5 virus that infected poultry back then primarily affected turkeys and uh, layer hens. And one of the reasons is because those are older birds. Layer hens can live as long as two years uh, same with layer turkeys. Um, and then the turkeys that become our Thanksgiving dinner turkeys, those turkeys live about five, five months. So that's a long time. So that gives the virus time to uh, shed from the wild bird, get into the domestic bird, become adapted enough that it causes a big enough infection in the domestic bird, and then sheds from turkey to turkey to turkey or from layer hen to layer hen to layer hen for chickens right? It needs time to do that. Um, Broilers are on this earth. Um, They become our chicken dinners in about six weeks. So that's not enough time um, from the time they're hatched as chicks to the time they're harvested for for a virus to really get going in them and cause a high path infection. That's what happened in 2015. Well, um, so it's probably an age thing and it's probably a strain thing, right? And we already said Mm -hmm. these viruses are smart. Mm -hmm. So as the virus has changed, let's look at 2022, 2022, this virus now has been circulating throughout the globe for seven years. 
it's adapted itself to be able to infect a wide variety of bird species. And we're not just talking ducks and geese, we're talking eagles, we're talking crows, um, we're talking other raptors, vultures, and things like that. So this virus adapted to infect those. It also adapted to affect, infect chickens, the broilers. So this 2022, this is the first time we had broilers infected. And that's because there was probably a few things. There was so much virus coming up with the wild birds through the migration. And two, it was adapted to be able to infect birds at a younger age. Um, so a fascinating virus, but with devastating consequences. So, it is an yeah, absolutely. The, do we know much about the adaption of the virus to allow it to proliferate more in broilers? Is it a change specifically with the H or the N gene uh, that makes it you know, more suitable in the broiler chicken environment or that's still to be determined? I think they're working on that right now. And there are probably people that have put out those papers and I haven't read all of them, um, but they can, they can work that out. Um, one thing I caution people is, is, is sometimes we, we narrow in on a specific genotype of the virus mm -hmm. and we say, well, this genotype usually expresses itself or has this phenotype. Sometimes that's true. And sometimes the virus is so smart. It just turns that off and turns on something else the next time. Um, so it really has to be proven over time if those those things hold true. Uh, yeah, so I don't know exactly. I don't think it's a, associated with the N because if we look at around the globe, there's lots of different H5N1 ever. So H5N8s, H5N5s, H5N1s, H5N6 and N2s. Really the N isn't seeming to matter very much. It's that, that the H for the highly pathogenic. Gotcha. Very good. Well, let's switch over to control. Um, if you're thinking about influenza control generally, Marie, humans, birds, pigs, everything, what are the first things that come to mind? Well, you know me, Clayton, I think of vaccination, right? I've been a huge proponent of human vaccinations for sure, not just to protect us as humans and our children and our families uh, from seasonal influenza, but to infect, to protect our pigs. Because when we look at the influenza viruses in our pigs, it's again, it's alphabet soup time. Sometimes you call me up and I say, well, you have H1N1, you have H1N2, you have H3N2, you have H3N1, and now you have this type of H1 or that type of H3. And then you hang up the phone and then you call me back <laughs> and we talk some more. But what we looked at, we said, well, why do pigs, why do pigs have all these different influenza viruses? And some work again, that Amy Vincent, who I mentioned earlier, she's a researcher with the USDA, and another good colleague of mine, Martha Nelson, a researcher with the NIH on the human side, um, what we figured out, or they figured out, and I kind of helped a little bit, but they figured out that the reasons that pigs have so many different influenza viruses is they're continually getting infected with human influenza viruses. And so, and of course we move our pigs around too, but what really kind of changes what our pigs are seeing is this, a human virus comes in, an influenza virus from a human. So I'm a big proponent of, if we vaccinate our humans, then we're not gonna shed as much virus to the pigs. Uh, so that's one way to control is through vaccination. And I do think um, that pig vaccinations have their place as part of the tools to control influenza. We have a separate podcast about that, um, but I, I'm a proponent of, of, of pig vaccinations. Um, it's easiest to give it to the sows, of course, you know, one dose protects 11, the sow and her 10 piglets. Um, so I'm a big proponent of sow vaccinations, how to do it exactly when and with what 
Okay, those are the things we have to work out. But I do think why is the answer is yes, you should do it. Um, so vaccinations is a big thing. Um, speaking of poultry, they don't have as many vaccination options, right? So we've got little broiler chickens, they're on the ground, they're gone in six weeks, their chicken dinner in six weeks, which is great. That doesn't give a lot of time to vaccinate them. And they're in big, big, big groups. We're talking millions. It's hard to pick up 1 million chicks and give them a vaccine. It's what we'd call impossible, um, extremely difficult. More likely turkeys and only really the genetic great, great grandparent stock turkeys would be vaccinating for um, influenza viruses, the H3s and H1s that cause that extreme egg drop. Um, you know, so we're at the top of the pyramid and we can protect the rest of the pyramid if we, if we vaccinate the top. Um, it's still not widely adopted. It's kind of hard to do as well, but they're, they're bigger birds and they're, they're handled for other reasons for artificial insemination or to, um, things like that. So we vaccinate those turkeys. The other thing about um, influenza control in humans, we have antiviral medications that we can take. And so um, sometimes um, when we as humans get our seasonal influenza virus, if we catch it early enough and the doctor wants to give us, we get antivirals. When humans that work with infected poultry are exposed to H5s or H7s by working with those infected birds, they get put on antivirals as a precaution. So that's a nice thing about influenza. Remember how we always tell our, we tell our um, pork producers, oh, it's a virus, there's no medication for it, right? Actually for influenza viruses, particularly for humans, there is a medication for it. There is an antiviral. So it's really nice that we have that tool for, for the humans. Um, so those would be the two big control things on uh, for all species, there's vaccinations, whether they're adopted or not. And then for humans, there's the antivirals. So we have two ways to control it with um, from that. With most of my experience with influenza vaccinations, they're not terribly complicated vaccine platforms. There are a lot of times, whether it's commercial or autogenous, the, the classic kill it, adjuvant it, and then intermuscular and vaccination. Is that pretty similar on the, the poultry side as well, that their, their vaccination programs are similar vaccine type platforms, or do they use some different technologies? Right now, it's that similar platform, kill it and activate it, adjuvant it and get it. Get it. Um, but to keep up with influenza virus, you probably have to think of a better platform, a new platform. Mm -hmm. Whether that's the mRNA vaccines, like we're um, um, made popular or common as a part of COVID control. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been doing mRNA vaccines and veterinary medicines for decades, right? Yeah. Our feline or cat vaccines have been mRNA for as long as you and I have been in vet school. Yep. Um, so that platform, um, and then there's uh, the universal vaccine platforms, um, which are still, um, and again, I don't know all about those, but people are trying to find a way is if you express a different part of the influenza and show that to the immune system, will that immune system be able to take, take on H1s, H3s, H5s, whatever it sees. So universal vaccines, and those are different platforms, usually um, DNA expression or mRNA expression platforms. I don't know a lot about those. I kind of share viruses with people who make those things, but I, I don't, I don't make those vaccines myself, but yep. those are possibilities there. As you think about influenza um, in the bird world, are the low path influenzas reportable or is it just the high path influenzas in the bird world? It depends on the state okay. um, where the poultry are raised. Um, 
and I don't want to over speak for anybody. I'm, in Minnesota, the poultry industry is very good at sharing information with each other and sharing information to the state animal health officials. And so in Minnesota, they would let their neighbors know and they would probably let their animal health official and their other veterinarians know if they had an H1 or H3 or whatever type of influenza. And it is, if I remember correctly, um, you do have to report the first case of a low path AI, but since low path AI is low path, you don't have to report subsequent cases. But I will say that nobody wants, in the poultry industry, nobody wants influenza. They're like, no, I'm not going to say, okay, now I have it. Now I'm going to just deal with it. No, nobody wants it. So they do deal with it um, in different ways. And I think um, that gives us a nice segue to the highly pathogenic even influenza viruses. Those are reportable. We don't want those anywhere in the United States. And as mm -hmm. soon as you suspect it, you're supposed to report it. And as soon as you get it, there are some actions that happen. Yeah. Because we consider it a foreign animal disease in the United States. We don't want it here, the H5s and the H7s in our poultry. Yeah. And the, with the, I should explain for our audience, if any of you don't know, a, a reportable animal disease is one that we commonly think of with the term foreign animal disease. Um, reportable disease typically means that we have to notify our state animal health officials um, and that um, actions will be taken. It doesn't mean those actions go straight to depopulation. Those actions can just be documenting, recording, right, collecting information. PED for a while was a reportable disease, and it didn't mean that you had to depopulate your herd if you had it. Um, and there are state-specific situations with reportable animal disease. We have that on the swine side. I think uh, TGE, if I remember, is a reportable disease in some states, but not in every state. Um, I bring up the reportable part of it because that's got to make the vaccination decisions complicated on the poultry side. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that in general, just in terms of the pros and cons of vaccination for a reportable disease, uh, and then give us an update on what the poultry people are doing currently? Great. So the pros and cons for vaccination of a reportable disease, um, there are many, and I can't say that I'm an expert in every single subject of it. But one of the things when you decide to vaccinate against a disease that is reportable, that is of high consequence, is what I like to say, it's going to cause some damage to either your, your pig's health, your productivity, or your market access, right? So that's a high consequence if you have that disease. So if you decide to vaccinate against that disease, it kind of says, I'm going to live with it um, for as long as I can, or I'm going to use vaccination until I can do something else. Or not I'm going to do, yeah, go ahead. I'm not eradicating it. I'm not, yep. if I vaccinate, I'm, I'm admitting that it's not the stomp it out. We're going to, we're going to depopulate everything immediately and we're getting yep. rid of this. Yeah. It's not the immediate eradication. I think it might be the, it might be a bridge yep. until there's a time to eradicate. Yep. Um, and so that's, that's to me what signals, that's um, one of the problems with vaccination. And so the other problem with vaccination that you can have is sometimes you can't tell the difference between an animal that has received the vaccine and an animal that has gotten the infection. Mm -hmm. And so you test that animal and you find, let's say antibodies. And you're like, well, did these antibodies to this virus, did the body's response to the virus, did it come from the vaccine or did this animal actually have an infection? Sure. So you need to be able to differentiate. You need to be able to tell that apart. And so until you have that test that can tell apart vaccine from a natural infection, that's going to be difficult as well. And poultry is just logistically 
impossible, right? We buy our eggs at a dollar a dozen, now $2 a dozen, right? So we are pennies of profit. And so when you're making pennies of profit, you usually raise poultry in a very large uh, operation, 1 million birds, 2 million birds, because it's operations of scale, profits of scale, right? It's difficult, if not impossible, to vaccinate a million birds individually. Mm -hmm. So you need these mass applications. So either uh, through a fogger or maybe in the egg, when the egg can go by, um, you know, or in the water and things like that. And you and I know how difficult it is to, to deliver things consistently in the water um, to a pig. Um, so those are those, those are the challenges they have right now. So it's, it's not on the table um, to vaccinate the United States poultry populations for H5s. Um, but with the amount of virus that's out there in the wild bird population, and we don't have control over the wild bird population, they're wild. Um, we need to prepare ourselves um, for, for influenza control. That would be one of the tools. Biosecurity being one of the tools. Um, vaccination being another tool. And then the other thing is, you know, how do we control the infections once they happen? Um, so what, how do we stamp out and things like that? So Wonderful segue into lessons learned from the poultry's experience with the current high path AI outbreak and the previous high path AI outbreaks. Um, our good friend, Dr. Aaron Lauer uses the quote, the cheapest lessons learned you'll ever get are, are your friends challenges, right? Um, yep. and I know Marie, you're, you're scheduled this afternoon to attend a meeting with um, uh, the, the swine industry and the poultry industry in Minnesota to talk about harvesting those lessons learned. Can you talk about the, the collaboration that's happening um, or, or not happening and, and what you think the valuable opportunities and learning for swine producers are? Yeah, yeah. Um, let me start out by saying, what did we learn in the poultry industry in Minnesota from 2015, which was our last big outbreak, to this year, 2022? So in seven years, um, what happened? What's different? So I want to give credit to Dr. Carol Cardona. She's the Pomeroy Chair of Avian Health here at the University of Minnesota in an endowed professorship position. And she knows a lot about influenza viruses and a lot about the poultry industry. And more importantly, she knows how to get people to work together. She's an extension expert as well. She's not only a great virologist, uh, a great team leader for the team that I work on, but she knows how to get people together. So let's look back 2015, when we suspected or confirmed that a flock was positive, it took us a week until first sample positive to depopulating that farm. So one week. In 2022, from first sample positive to depopulation, we got that down to 36 hours. So if you're able to eradicate the infected population, so depopulate them or food repopulate them, block depopulate them in 36 hours, you decrease the amount of virus that's in the environment, right? So instead of if you had, for example, um, 100,000 birds and you killed the first barn of 1,000, right? So you only had 1,000 out of 100,000 infected. If you let it linger for seven days, now you're gonna have 90,000 out of 100,000. That's a lot more virus to deal with. Um, what the other things that we had, um, the bigger challenges that we had from 2015 back to 2022, back in 2015, there wasn't as many wild birds or backyards and birds involved. Um, we didn't have these thousands. The last time I looked at the wild birds in 2022, there was 1,000 
441. I remember the number 1441 wild birds that were infected in 2022. Oh, those are the ones we find, right? Can you imagine how many more there were that we didn't find that were in the middle of some slough somewhere that we couldn't access? So we had extensive wild bird involvement, which means we had extensive backyard involvement in 2022. So that's something we didn't have really good control over. Um, And the other thing, uh, 2015, the difference between 2015 and 2022. In 2015, we really had the brunt of the impact of that outbreak was in Iowa and Minnesota. And very focused there. And in 2022, it was spread all over the place. So maybe it was a little bit easier to have multiple places involved, but from the federal level, probably not because they had to be in a bunch of different states all at the same time. Um, in 2015, they could be focused in Iowa and Minnesota. So a little bit of a dilution of resources, concentration of resources, what's better there. Um, then we are gonna talk about what we've done differently since then. So. Um, the poultry industry is fascinating, Clayton. And I always tell people if I hadn't held a baby chick, a chick, the chicken chick, when I was in vet school, I would have never become a pig vet because they're amazing at one day of age to two day of age, the growth that occurs in those little birds. That's amazing. Um, but that said, that's different for a turkey. That's different for a layer. There's so many different kinds of turkeys and poultry. And so it's really hard to be a poultry expert because your egg layers are handled different from your broilers are handled different from your turkeys. And so what we do in the state of Minnesota is we have people that represent the turkey industry, the broiler industry, and the layer industry, and they all come together to talk to our state animal health official or state veterinarian, who is a veterinarian who may have been trained in cattle production or swine production and knows a little bit, you know, they can tell a turkey from a chicken, but they don't know the intricacies of the farm's day-to-day operation. Just like you and I may know how the sow farm operates really, really well, but not how the finisher operates as well, right? So we have to bring those people together and say, listen, here's what's going on in the farms. Here's how I think we can control it. And the state will say, well, what if we bring in a bulldozer? And they'll say, well, no, the doors of the barns are too small for a bulldozer. What if we bring in this? And so that kind of back and forth happens. The other things is that the producers may come up with solutions that are not allowed per state laws. Yeah. Um, You know, EPA registrations, landfill acceptance, um, water tables for burials, compost piles, things like that. Those are kind of things you need to work with the state, what's allowed by the EPA, by the land ownership. And the other thing is the legalities of it, right? Um, What information is protected information, what information can be shared. And then on the federal level, it's where is the federal government involved? If your state's infected, how does that affect national trade, national markets, and things like that? And so there's really has to be those three levels four levels of expertise, I would say that you've got the producer who knows what's going on in the farm. You've got the state veterinarian who knows what's going on in the state and who to bring in from the state to get to those answers, whether it's legal or political or environmental. Um, Then you've got the national to deal with trade and national resources and markets. And then you've got the fourth piece uh, where you and I fall in or I fall in is the academic piece. You know, all I know about the virus, the virus does this. If you use this disinfectant, the virus will die in two hours versus four hours at this amount of heat, things like that. So we bring all those four people together and we call those public-private partnerships because not one person has all the answers and not one person can know everything about every farm. So you really have to have those public-private partnerships and it starts with trust. 
right? And um, in your market may be different than my market. You don't want to, I don't want to steal your ideas, but in an outbreak, you have to be transparent because you're kind of all going down together sometimes. Yep. Um, and you can all get lifted up together. So what we start with is building that trust and attacking the issues. You know, we do some low hanging fruit issues like traceability. Mm-hmm. Every farm should have a latitude and longitude attached to a premise ID number. Yep. So when an outbreak happens, we can say, oh, well, in 10 miles from that particular latitude and longitude, there's 18 farms or six mm-hmm. farms or whatever. So we, we kind of tackle traceability first. And then we tackle the harder things like, well, if your birds died, where would you put them? If your pigs died, where would you handle the carcasses? Who could handle them? Is there a landfill? No, no landfills and stuff like that. We move on to the harder issues and then um, and, and go on with that. And then there's bankers that are involved with compensation. You know, yeah. how do you compensate a sow? Is it just on her cull value or is it on her productive lifetime value? Yeah. Is it on the chicken's cull value or her productive lifetime value? Those are things that I'm not an expert on, but they're important to figure out. So that's what we do in Minnesota. We get that public-private partnership together to start working through those issues. And then we start working together on, um, we kind of, sometimes it's, you know, who thinks it's important today, or there's a situation coming up, or we've heard something in another country, how do we apply it in Minnesota or the region? I think that's another thing that's really important, Clayton, and, and maybe a good segue and more important to your other listeners that are probably not from Minnesota is we don't, we're not in a bubble here in Minnesota. Our pigs, we have what, one, two, three, uh, pig slaughter plants. Our pigs leave Minnesota. We bring pigs in to Minnesota. So we are uh, a fluid border with Iowa, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, probably even Canada. Canada. And Illinois. Yeah. 10,000 pigs a day come in from Canada was last time I checked into Minnesota. Yep. Um, so we have to work in a region. So if we say, hey, we're going to depopulate by this method and we're going to um, dispose of the infected animals in this method. What does that mean for you in Iowa and Minnesota? What if we let these pigs move from this nursery that's attached, you know, that has an infected sow farm and we move those nurseries to a different finisher? What does that mean for you and your other finishers? So we work through those issues ahead of time um, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. So, but it's getting that communication together in the first place bring up a great trust. point with the <clears throat> the borders, whether they're state borders or um, international borders, like with Canada, animal movement will be fluid. And uh, the animal movements we know about with the domesticated livestock, that's enough to, to get your heart pumping and make you realize the risk that we all have with a disease outbreak. And then you add on, whether it's the wild birds in the poultry situation or feral swine in our world, right? Those animals move across those borders all the time and they don't follow the permits. They don't follow the routes, all that sort of stuff. Is there anything that you've learned about either the wildlife management part of it and or the border management on the poultry side that is something we should harvest for the swine uh, industry? Well, um, from the wild bird movements, um, you know, they're in the millions of time greater population and thousands of times numbers of species than there are for feral swine. So as swine veterinarians put my pig vet hat on, um, I feel very much easier that I'm only dealing with one species of feral swine versus 3000 species of wild birds. Yep. Um, the other thing is that the wild animals, you can't control them and you, and you don't want to control them, right? 
in a sense, is that, um, you know, they're part of the uh, treasured ecosystem, whether it's for hunting or for biodiversity or whatever. And so what you need to do is how can I separate my domestic population, my farm from the wild species? And does mm -hmm. that mean uh, raising animals indoors? Well, for a lot of us, yes, it means mm -hmm. that because yep. one, we not only protect them from predators, from parasites, but we can infect them, protect them from extreme heat and extreme cold. Yep. which is what, what we have um, nowadays. So that means moving them inside. What about those people that want to have that, that pasture outdoor experience? Well, then you could say, well, wild birds, um, they're not going to want to compete with a thousand chickens in a yard. So if I let my chickens out during the day, the number of wild birds will be probably not there to interact with. So you limit the time that those chickens are outside. You certainly don't leave them out overnight, mm -hmm. which is when birds come down, Yep. and roost or they migrate over and they find a place so that timing of things there's been some really neat um animal measurements animal timing when do the animals come on the farm and not um so things like that and the other things is um you know if if um if they assume that the wild population is infected then back to that separation okay my animals are inside but now how am i going to get inside to take care of my animals without tracking stuff in and so that, and that's got to be practical biosecurity too, right? Let's yeah. take the poultry population. You got 10 barns of 10,000 birds per barn. You got three people taking yep. care of them. Are you going to add on an hour worth of biosecurity changes between those 10 barns? No, because now you've got 10 more hours in the day yep. that you don't have. So you have to make these things practical. How can I get in the barn and take care of my animals without bringing things with them? And, you know, you had probably countless podcasts about practical biosecurity, um, target, what we like to call targeted biosecurity, right? What's really mm -hmm. necessary to keep on influenza. Um, yeah. It's easy to keep diseases out. It's hard to do it practically, right? We can yeah. set up exclusion barriers that say, well, you know, if you don't want, uh, if you don't want the, the feed to be a risk or the supplies to be a risk, just don't bring them in the farm. And then you remember, oh yeah, we kind of need the feed and we kind of yeah. need those supplies to actually operate the farm. So yeah. easy to, easy to put on paper, not as easy to execute. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the backyard flocks um, uh, being a challenge on the poultry side. We have somewhat an analogy there on the pig side, maybe with um, smaller producers, whether that's you know 4-H pigs, people that are doing it uh, for kind of hobby, um, to, to maybe just smaller niche producers that much like the birds, they have a market access that you know includes their outdoor access or some other quality attribute that they package up as part of their sales premium anything that we can harvest from the the backyard poultry that that we can use that analogy with our smaller pig producers from a foreign animal disease or reportable disease standpoint yeah so that's an area of actually active research here at the university of minnesota and um and throughout the united states is really characterizing that backyard um or small and i don't want to say backyard either because that brings up different connotations for me in the suburbs than you in the in the out in the country, but the smaller holder farms, mm -hmm. um, trying to characterize those um, in Minnesota in the Midwest. And, and Dr. Cesar Corso and I have a graduate student, Dr. Miranda Murdrano, who's going to be looking at that in the Midwest, characterizing that small holder farm. What are their connections to the big commercial industry? What's their connection to the Johnson farm, for example? Yep. Maybe they're in two different circles and there's not different connections. Maybe sure. they do use the same feed mill, same transport, who knows? Um, the backyard flocks for poultry, and they're called backyard flocks by the United States and, 
And that is because like in my city where I live, um, I can have six chickens and it's totally fine. And I can have my eggs every morning. Um, I don't, um, but I can have six chickens in my backyard. So these are more an apt description um, because they actually are in people's yards as part of their um, eggs or meat or just pets. And um, the challenge this year in 2022 is we are seeing more backyard flocks, but we are also having a virus infecting our poultry in the United States that is more capable of infecting chickens. And more people are gonna have backyard chickens for eggs and meat than they are gonna have backyard ducks or turkeys, right? Mm -hmm. So there's more backyard chickens in the United States than there are ducks and ducks. We don't really have a handle on the smallholder pig farms in the United States. I don't think we do. So one lesson we could learn is really better communication and better outreach to all sizes of pig farms. And I think the poultry industry has done a great job at this, perfect. No, but they've done better than a lot of other industries of reaching out to those um, smallholder farms and saying, hey, for you and your coop, this issue, this you should do be doing this. And here's some resources for you as you handle HAPI or that you suspect it, or you can keep it out of your coop. And one of the things was, you know, change your boots before you go into your coop during the wild bird migration season, because you could have had ducks come by overnight or other birds, right? So you don't want to bring that into your coop. Feed your birds inside the coop. So you're not attracting wild birds to your yard, right? And so feed feed spill management and feeding management is something we do. So one thing we could do with our smallholder swine is increase that communication and do it in an open way that we're all in this together. It's not, oh, you, you're a risk to me, but hey, we all have risks to each other. Um, and so we need to understand what those risks are and share information about that. And that that's, that's a hard thing to do, um, but it needs to be done. Not pointing fingers, it sounds like is a big part of that. Any other yes. tips for, um, uh, say, a, a larger producer that wants to share with a smallholder producer on the swine side, best practices for biosecurity, best practices for influenza vaccination, anything like that? How do you get the yeah. message across? Yeah, how do you get the message across? Um, you really have to go to them, right? And so um, you're in a unique position um, at your vet clinic is that it says, um, well, it's Carthage Vet Services, but you have a pig as your logo, right? So you may get um, some reach out from people that have a few pigs here and there, and you can start sure. there. Yep. I think we should be active at our um, at our county fairs and state fairs to let people know that there is um, health management options um, for the pigs that can be year round. Um, I think um, Dr. Andy Bowman at the Ohio State University does a great job at reaching out to a smallholder and show pig industry as to what disease control can look like there. And again, it's got to be practical, right? And sometimes it's as easy as a, as a bucket and a pair of boots and being able to wash those boots at the end of the day um, and remove them. And, and certainly I'm not the on-farm expert. I'm stuck here in my office today, but so I rely on you guys to help me with those things. But just kind of keeping it practical and reaching out and recognizing, having some humility that you don't have all the answers that would work for them. Bring it to them and see what works on their farm. So. Yeah, pig farming is certainly a, a, a occupation that will bring you humility if you don't start with it. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I know we're getting close on time, Marie. Um, I do want to, to get us wrapped up. We had a vesicular disease scare in the UK over the weekend. Um, fortunately, it seems like that's a, a false alarm, but uh, a scare nonetheless. We always talk about ASF and ASF is in the Americas right now and it's not going away anytime soon, um, despite what we would like to see happen. 
what what's the low hanging fruit that the swine industry should be harvesting from the poultry high path AI outbreaks right now? What are the things that you you see being done in the poultry industry that we on the swine side are slow to uptake or not recognizing and not not being as progressive as we should be? Um, I think probably the lowest hanging fruit is the is the traceability item. Um, because there's been, and this is a term I wanted to get to, we had our infected flocks, flocks that birds that were dying and infected from high path avian influenza. And then we had affected flocks, flocks that were in the 10 kilometers around that. They were affected and they couldn't move. They couldn't do their business movements without um, a permit, without having the state and officials say, it's okay for you to move your turkeys to slaughter if you do this, this, and this thing. And we have to know where you are and where you're going. So that traceability is key. And I think our affected uh, producers um, in, in Minnesota have learned that. So traceability is key, having it be a latitude and longitude associated with a premise ID to where the animals are, not where the mailbox is, not where uh, grandpa's house is, because grandpa yeah. gets all the supplies, sure. right? So making sure that's, and that would save you a lot of time in the outbreak because you'd say, oh my goodness, there's an infection here at Clayton Johnson's farm. I know that there's 10 farms around there within 10 miles. So at most, I'm going to need this many resources. At a minimum, I need this. And so um, really that kind of basic preparation. And you think about it like a fire in your house, right? You've got, where does all my important papers, right? They're in this yep. firebox and I'm going to mm -hmm. grab it and go. Same thing. If I have an infectious disease, what do I need to say? I need to tell people, okay, this is where I am. Nothing should come in or out of my farm until it's under control. Mm -hmm. And this is how many things I have to control. This is how many pigs, cattle, things like that. Um, I would say that traceability one is the big thing. On the pig side, I think what we really need to do is get people to look at their pigs every day. Um, which I think with pigs is, is much better than cattle on pasture or feedlot cattle. You might not see them every day, but look at their pigs every day and get a sense of what does a sick pig look like? Because a sick pig is going to be uh, early detection than dead pigs, right? Sure. So you walk through and you see um, a pig that just won't get up, right? And so you might mark it um, and you talk about humility, right? We've seen little nursery pigs that have been sound asleep that we were worried about. I don't know about sure. you. Yeah. Yep. Right after eating and they're just out for the count. Yeah. But you know, mark that pig, watch that pig and take that, take that sample. And I think we at the uh, university and formerly of the diagnostic lab in the diagnostic out era, we have to make it a sample that is easy to collect. Right. And nice. And then again, I'll, I'll harken back to Andy Bowman from the Ohio state. Um, nasal wiping those show pigs, you know, so he didn't have to, didn't have to snare them and get them all angry right before the show. He just wiped their yeah. nose and he have a good sample to take. We have to do that for our producers too, whether it is uh, like with turkeys, uh, Dr. Cardona worked with a bunch of turkey producers. They, they sample the water bell, the, the, and they sample that because that's all the turkeys getting together. It's kind of like our oral fluid for pigs. Sure. Um, you know, what's an individual pig sample? Can we do, can we take a rectal swab or a nasal wipe or a mouth swab, something that's easy for anybody to take so we can get that early diagnostics. But before that, I say, can you recognize that sick pig? Where is it? Right. Yep. And I think that's good for, and that's, that's what I like to do. And I guess I'd leave it like that. Um, since we're coming up on time here is that 
you know, these foreign animal diseases, it's like, oh, it might come, it might never come, right? But what can we do for the producers that will help them with their production today? I think being able to recognize a sick pig is something that can help you right now today, Absolutely. despite the disease, right? So you can have early treatment or um, you can take care of it um, before the disease gets too bad and you, and you lose that pig. Um, how do I assess whether the pigs are eating right? Well, that's important for today, right? Feed is the number one cost for pigs. How can I tell? Is the speeder too loose? Are they eating or not eating? Those are things I'd like to kind of do. And then if I can find a biosecurity benefit, I'd love to do that. Yes, you need to wash your boots because now you're not tracking rotavirus, which is everywhere. Maybe yep. you're decreasing the amount of rotavirus. That's that's what I'd really like to do. And that's where I rely on, on good friends and colleagues like you to help me realize what's practical for the farm that will help you now that we can just scale up or do more of or do it better during an outbreak. Yep. So. And there's been a lot of advances in those areas, right? Diagnostics you mentioned and practical samples. Um, there's been tremendous improvements um, to make samples practical, not only for collection, right? Oral fluids is a great example, but also for the value for producers today. We can use oral fluids for the endemic diseases, the PERS, the influenzas and in pigs, as well as the reportable diseases if and when they get here. So there's, there, there is certainly progress that's out there, but we can't rest on those laurels. We've got to continue to try and yeah. get better and better. Yeah. And not, and not rest, not rely on just one thing. So it's not going to be just oral fluids. That's right. Right. It's going to be oral fluids plus finding that sick pig and getting that pig, sick pig sample. It's going to be washing air boots and, you know, downtime It's going to be the type of disinfectant and things like that. It's always going to be a toolbox. Yep. Never going to be the silver bullet and everybody wants a silver bullet or the easy button, but that's not going to be, but if we can make it worthwhile for now, things that people can do now, I think we're in a good place. So very good. Well, thank you very much, Marie, for the time today, all the time that you put in the industry, but specifically for sharing your messages today. Uh, I also want to send out a big thank you to swineweb.com. Um, Jim Eady and his team uh, have a wonderful website. Uh, you can go to his website anytime and find uh, this episode with Marie or any of the other episodes we've done on the podcast, uh, as well as uh, countless numbers of daily newsletters and, and information about the swine industry. Uh, for Swine Doc Pod with Carthage, my name is Clayton Johnson. Thank you very much for Marie for being with us and for our audience. Thanks and have a great day. You're welcome. Have a great day. Bye-bye.